Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BBJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is the show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found in the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link in every post. Tonight we continue our story, The Adventure of the Retired Cullerman, by Arthur Conan Doyle. Little Purlington is not an easy place to reach, for it is on a branch line. My remembrance of the journey is not a pleasant one, for the weather was hot, the train slow, and my companion sullen and silent, hardly talking at all save to make an occasional sardonic remark as to the futility of our proceedings. When we at last reached the little station, it was a two-mile drive before we came to the vicarage, where a big, solemn, rather pompous clergyman received us in his study. Our telegram lay before him. Well, gentlemen, he asked, what can I do for you? We came, I explained, in answer to your wire. My wire? I sent no wire. I mean, the wire which you sent to Mr. Josiah Amberley about his wife and his money. If this is a joke, sir, it is a very questionable one, said the vicar angrily. I have never heard of the gentleman you name, and I have not sent a wire to anyone. Our client and I looked at each other in amazement. Perhaps there is some mistake, said I. Are there perhaps two vicarages? Here's the wire itself, signed Elman and dated from the vicarage. There is only one vicarage, sir, and only one vicar, and this wire is a scandalous forgery, the origin of which shall certainly be investigated by the police. Meanwhile, I can see no possible object in prolonging this interview. So Mr. Amberley and I found ourselves on the roadside in what seemed to me the most primitive village in England. We made for the telegraph office, but it was already closed. There was a telephone, however, at the little railway arms, and by it I got into touch with Holmes, who shared in our amazement at the result of our journey. Most singular, said the distant voice. Most remarkable. I much fear, dear Watson, that there is no return train tonight. I have unwittingly condemned you to the horrors of a country inn. However, there is always nature, Watson. Nature and Josiah Amberley. You can be in close commune with both. I heard his dry chuckle as he turned away. It was soon apparent to me that my companion's reputation as a miser was not undeserved. He had grumbled at the expense of the journey, had insisted on traveling third class, and was now clamorous in his objections to the hotel bill. Next morning, when we did at last arrive in London, it was hard to say which of us was in the worst humor. "'You had best take Baker Street as we pass,' said I. "'Mr. Holmes may have some fresh instructions.' If they are not worth more than the last ones, they are not of much use, said Amberley with a malevolent scowl. Nonetheless, he kept me company. I had already warned Holmes by telegram of the hour of our arrival, but we found a message waiting that he was at Lewisham and would expect us there. That was a surprise. 
But an even greater one was to find that he was not alone in the sitting room of our client. A stern-looking, impassive man sat beside him, a dark man with grey-tinted glasses and a large Masonic pin projecting from his tie. "'This is my friend, Mr. Barker,' said Holmes. "'He's been interesting himself also in your business, Mr. Josiah Amberley, "'though we have been working independently. "'But we both have the same question to ask you.' "'Mr. Amberley sat down heavily. "'He sensed impending danger. "'I read it in his training eyes and his twitching features.' What is the question, Mr. Holmes? Only this. What did you do with the bodies? The man sprang to his feet with a hoarse scream. He clawed into the air with his bony hands. His mouth was open, and for the instant he looked like some horrible bird of prey. In a flash, we got a glimpse of the real Josiah Amberley, a misshapen demon with a soul as distorted as his body. As he fell back into his chair, he clapped his hand to his lips as if to stifle a cough. Holmes sprang at his throat like a tiger and twisted his face toward the ground. A white pellet fell from between his gasping lips. No shortcuts, Josiah Amberley. Things must be done decently and in order. What about it, Barker? I have a cab at the door, said our taciturn companion. It is only a few hundred yards to the station. We will go together. You can stay here, Watson. I shall be back within half an hour. The old colorman had the strength of a lion in that great trunk of his, but he was helpless in the hands of the two experienced manhandlers. Wriggling and twisting, he was dragged to the waiting cab, and I was left to my solitary vigil in the ill-omened house. In less time than he had named, however, Holmes was back, in company with a smart young police inspector. "'I've left Barker to look after the formalities,' said Holmes. "'You had not met Barker, Watson. He is my hated rival upon the Surrey shore. When you said a tall, dark man, it was not difficult for me to complete the picture. He has several good cases to his credit, has he not, Inspector?' "'He has certainly interfered several times,' The inspector answered with reserve. His methods are irregular, no doubt, like my own. The irregulars are useful sometimes, you know. You, for example, with your compulsory warning about whatever he said being used against him, could never have bluffed this rascal into what is virtually a confession. Perhaps not. But we get there all the same, Mr. Holmes. Don't imagine that we had not formed our own views of this case and that we would not have laid our hands on our man. You will excuse us for feeling sore when you jump in with methods we cannot use, and so rob us of the credit. There will be no such robbery, McKinnon. I assure you that I efface myself from now onward, and as to Barker, he has done nothing save what I told him. The inspector seemed considerably relieved. That is very handsome of you, Mr. Holmes. Praise or blame can matter little to you, but it is very different to us when the newspapers begin to ask questions. Quite so, but they are pretty sure to ask questions anyhow, so it would be as well to have answers. What will you say, for example, when the intelligent and enterprising reporter 
asks you what the exact points were which aroused your suspicion and finally gave you a certain conviction as to the real facts. The inspector looked puzzled. We don't seem to have got any real facts yet, Mr. Holmes. You say that the prisoner, in the presence of three witnesses, practically confessed by trying to commit suicide, that he had murdered his wife and her lover. What other facts have you? Have you arranged for a search? There are three constables on their way. Then you will soon get the clearest fact of all. The bodies cannot be far away. Try the cellars and the garden. It should not take long to dig up the likely places. This house is older than the water pipes. There must be a disused well somewhere. Try your luck there. But how did you know of it? And how was it done? I'll show you first how it was done, and then I will give the explanation which is due to you, and even more to my long-suffering friend here, who has been invaluable throughout. But first, I would give you an insight into this man's mentality. It is a very unusual one, so much so that I think his destination is more likely to be Broadmoor than the scaffold. He has, to a high degree, the sort of mind which one associates with the medieval Italian nature rather than the modern Briton. He was a miserable miser who made his wife so wretched by his ways that she was a ready prey for any adventure. Such a one came upon the scene in the person of this chess-playing doctor. Amberley excelled at chess, one Mark Watson of a scheming mind. Like all misers, he was a jealous man, and his jealousy became a frantic mania. Rightly or wrongly, he suspected an intrigue. He determined to have his revenge, and he planned it with diabolical cleverness. Come here. Holmes led us along the passage with as much certainty as if he had lived in a house and halted at the open door of the strong room. Oh, what an awful smell of paint, cried the inspector. That was our first clue, said Holmes. You can thank Dr. Watson's observation for that. Though he failed to draw the inference... It set my foot upon the trail. Why should this man at such a time be filling his house with strong odors? Obviously, to cover some other smell which he wished to conceal. Some guilty smell which would suggest suspicions. Then came the idea of a room such as you see here, with iron door and shutter, a hermetically sealed room. Put those facts together, and whether do they lead... I could only determine that by examining the house myself. I was already certain that the case was serious, for I had examined the box office chart at the Haymarket Theatre, another of Dr. Watson's bullseyes, and ascertained that neither B-30 nor 32 of the upper circle had been occupied that night. Therefore, Amberley had not been to the theater, and his alibi fell to the ground. He made a bad slip when he allowed my astute friend to notice the number of the seat taken for his wife. The question now arose how I might be able to examine the house. I sent an agent to the most impossible village I could think of, and summoned my man to it at such an hour that he could not possibly get back. To prevent any miscarriage, Dr. Watson accompanied him. The good vicar's name I took, of course, out of my Crockford. Do I make it all clear to you? It is masterly, said the inspector in an awed voice. 
There being no fear of interruption, I proceeded to burgle the house. Burglary has always been an alternative profession had I cared to adopt it, and I have little doubt that I should have come to the front. Observe what I found. You see the gas pipe along the skirting here? Very good. It rises in the angle of the wall, and there is a tap here in the corner. The pipe runs out into the strong room, as you can see, and ends in that plaster rose in the center of the ceiling, where it is concealed by the ornamentation. That end is wide open. At any moment, by turning the outside tap, the room could be flooded with gas. With door and shutter closed and the tap full on, I would not give two minutes of conscious sensation to anyone shut up in that little chamber. By what devilish device he decoyed them there, I do not know. But once inside the door, they were at his mercy. The inspector examined the pipe with interest. One of our officers mentioned the smell of gas, said he. But of course the window and door were open then, and the paint, or some of it, was already about. He'd begun the work of painting the day before, according to his story. But what next, Mr. Holmes? Well, there came an incident which was rather unexpected to myself. I was slipping through the pantry window in the early dawn when I felt a hand inside my collar, and a voice said, Now, you rascal, what are you doing in there? When I could twist my head round, I looked into the tinted spectacles of my friend and rival, Mr. Barker. It was a curious foregathering and set us both smiling. It seems that he had been engaged by Dr. Ray Ernest's family to make some investigations and had come to the same conclusion as to foul play. He had watched the house for some days and had spotted Dr. Watson as one of the obviously suspicious characters who had called there. He could hardly arrest Watson, but when he saw a man actually climbing out of the pantry window, there came a limit to his restraint. Of course, I told him how matters stood and we continued the case together. Why him? Why not us? Because it was in my mind to put that little test which answered so admirably. I fear you would not have gone so far. The inspector smiled. Well, maybe not. I understand that I have your word, Mr. Holmes, that you step right out of the case now and that you turn all your results over to us. Certainly, that is always my custom. Well, in the name of the force, I thank you. It seems a clear case, as you put it, and there can't be much difficulty over the bodies. I'll show you a grim little bit of evidence, said Holmes, and I am sure Amberly himself never observed it. You'll get results, Inspector, by always putting yourself in the other fellow's place and thinking what you would do yourself. It takes some imagination, but it pays. Now, we will suppose that you were shut up in this little room, had not two minutes to live, but wanted to get even with the fiend who was probably mocking at you from the other side of the door. What would you do? Write a message. Exactly. You would like to tell people how you died. No use writing on paper. That would be seen. If you wrote on the wall, someone might rest upon it. Now... Look here. Just above the skirting is scribbled with a purple indelible pencil. We, we, that's all. What do you make of that? Well, it's only a foot above the ground. 
The poor devil was on the floor dying when he wrote it. He lost his senses before he could finish. He was writing, we were murdered. That's how I read it. If you find an indelible pencil on the body, we'll look out for it. You may be sure. But those securities, clearly there was no robbery at all. And yet he did possess those bonds. We verified that. You may be sure he has them, hidden in a safe place. When a whole elopement had passed into history, he would suddenly discover them and announce that the guilty couple had relented and sent back the plunder or had dropped it on the way. You certainly seem to have met every difficulty, said the inspector. Of course, he was bound to call us in. But why he should have gone to you, I can't understand. Pure swank, Holmes answered. He felt so clever and so sure of himself that he imagined no one could touch him. He could say to any suspicious neighbor, Look at the steps I have taken. I have consulted not only the police, but even Sherlock Holmes. The inspector laughed. We must forgive you your even, Mr. Holmes, said he. It's as workmanlike a job as I can remember. A couple of days later, my friend tossed across to me a copy of the bi-weekly North Surrey Observer. Under a series of flaming headlines, which began with The Haven Horror and ended with Brilliant Police Investigation, there was a packed column of print which gave the first consecutive account of the affair. The concluding paragraph is typical of the whole. It ran thus. The remarkable acumen by which Inspector McKinnon deduced from the smell of paint that some other smell, that of gas, for example, might be concealed. The bold deduction that the strong room might also be the death chamber and the subsequent inquiry which led to the discovery of the bodies in a disused well, cleverly concealed by a dog kennel, should live in the history of crime as a standing example of the intelligence of our professional detectives. Well, well, McKinnon is a good fellow, said Holmes with a tolerant smile. You can file it in our archives, Watson. Someday the true story may be told. We are always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>